0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Before I introduce um, our guest today, just a couple things that I invite you to do if you feel impressed. One is um, to go leave a review at Deseret Book or Amazon for the new book I wrote called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. You can buy the book, too, if you want to and share it with others, but please at least leave a review. It helps others connect with it. I'd also encourage you to go to iTunes and leave a review for this podcast. We've generally had really positive ones, but I got about four trolls, I assume in a row, that left one-star reviews that clearly haven't listened to the podcast and understand what we're doing here. And so I could use, if you feel impressed and feel that way about the podcast, leave um, a positive review because I just, it'll help listeners know that perhaps that is not consistent with overall podcast. Um, thanks for all you're doing to share the podcast with others and connect people with the important topics we're trying to talk about. The best we can is um, um, bringing more understanding to complicated topics. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Adam Baker. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you, Richard. Um, just to introduce Adam, he is 29, he grew up in Idaho. Mm-hmm. He graduated from BYU Idaho in exercise psychology, physiology, physiology. I knew I'd say that uh, backwards and that's tricky spelling difference. Physiology, mm-hmm. and um, got is also got a graduate degree from Idaho State. He's a physician's assistant. And tell mm-hmm. us where your job is taking you, Adam.
1: So I will be moving next month to Vale, Oregon. Well, I'll be living in Ontario, which is just outside of Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. So it's just right over the Oregon border.
0: what kind of work will you be doing? Family medicine. Yeah. And if I'd met you during your undergraduate at BYU-Idaho, is that the kind of job you wanted or did this come later?
1: I think it was a process. Definitely a process. Uh, I would say by my third year of my undergrad, I knew that I wanted to do medicine. Um, And so that's kind of where I went with it. And I knew by the time I started PA school, I wanted to work with Spanish speaking population and the underserved in a rural community. So this is kind of the perfect picture for what I was going for.
0: Share with our listeners why Spanish?
1: Well, I served a Mission Wisconsin, Spanish speaking. Um, and there, I think I grew to understand more of the limitations that those who speak Spanish and, and many other populations within the U.S. experience. Um, and so my heart kind of grew for that those type of people, and I want to be there for them.
0: I love that. I love what you're doing in Wired for Marginalized Groups. Um, Adam is gay. We're going to talk about his story as a gay Latter-day Saint. He, As he mentioned, he served a mission to Wisconsin. We're going to talk about him coming out on Mother's Day 2016. That's roughly four to five years ago, so that's in your about 24, 25 world. And so he's going to share that story. Adam is dating men. Adam's hope is to marry a man. So this is one of those stories where we're just trying to come together and common ground. We're the same human family, and um, and just honoring Adam's story. Why do I do podcasts with people um, that are pursuing a same-sex marriage? Some might ask, as an active Latter-day Saint, and I I do that because I just want to bring us together as the same human family and honor Adam's story and and help him to feel our love and support as Latter-day Saints as he makes his way forward the best way he can. And I think it also helps potentially not create really angry people if if we're kind to people. Um, Adam will talk about that. Adam has a great relationship with God, with the Savior. He offered a prayer. He's just a great man with a great heart, doing the very best he can on a pretty complicated road. And so I I like doing these kind of podcasts. Those of you that are LGBTQ and listening, our hope is that you'll hear some things from Adam that will help you um, on your road. Adam's been on this road for quite a while. If your parents or local leaders, the things Adam share with you will help you as you help LGBTQ Latter-day Saints make their way forward. And our hope is actually to build faith in our church. Um, Both of us have a belief in our church and a testimony of our church and believe that Jesus Christ is at the head of the church. And so we hope that you also build faith in our church. Are you okay with all that, Adam? I am. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's it's always, I always get tender hearted just doing these podcast listeners that somebody like Adam is brave enough just to share his story with 10,000 listeners. And um, thanks for doing this, Adam. Yeah. Thank
1: you. And actually, if I can intercede, please. Okay. I didn't tell Richard I was going to do this, but I want to publicly thank him um, for being willing to do this. Cause I know I was introduced to your podcast. Was it probably four or five months ago? And boy, have I spent probably a good hundred or or more hours listening. (laughs) That's what I do when I drive and and work out and stuff. So um, I just want to thank you for creating the space for other people. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm, I've come to realize that oftentimes in life, we either, we, I guess, stretch ourselves to learn out of pure necessity. That was my case, right? <laughs> um, I, the Lord kind of gave me things that forced me to learn and other people are just naturally have the gift of humility and I would place you in that camp. So I want to thank you for that. Um, you didn't have to get into this space, but yet you chose to. So I want to personally express my gratitude for your kindness in doing that. You're helping lots and lots of people.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And um, we have a common friend in Cameron Staley. Mm -hmm. Um, Share with our listeners Cameron's role in your life.
1: So Cameron, we'll get into this later, I'm sure. Yeah,
0: this is kind of coming later. Yeah, yeah.
1: But Cameron was my therapist during PA school. Um, I had a little (laughs) self-doubting moment in PA school. (laughs) So um, he was my therapist and I grew a ton from from working with him. And so I started listening to your podcast. I reached out to you, I think, two months ago, roughly, and said, hey, I know somebody who who you could use on your podcast. So thank you for having him. He was a great guest, and I loved listening to it.
0: So Cameron is episode 345, um, and he is, if I'm, (laughs) I hope I remember exactly his, I'm going to read the episode description just real quickly. I can't find it, but he talks about pornography, solving pornography. It's one of the very best podcasts. And his clinical expertise and just um, natural skill, and if that's just a, one of our very best podcasts, three forty-five. And Cameron, thank you for your work. Let's um, talk about um, pre-mission. Did you? How did did you know this part about you that you were gay or same-sex attraction? Share with our listeners sort of your self-awareness of your sexual orientation pre-mission.
1: I would say my self-awareness. I knew I was attracted to men ever since I was probably. Ooh. 10 or so, <laughs> roughly 10 years old. Would I admit that? Absolutely not. For sure not. And so, In fact, it was something um, that I was deeply ashamed of for sure. So I'd have never, never told anybody <laughs> that that's what I was experiencing.
0: Talk And was that, did that feeling just last the whole time, Adam, up until your mission? Did it come and go? Did you come close to talking to people about it? Um, and did you get really dark emotional spots pre-mission because this was part of your life?
1: I would say, hmm, it's a hard question, but yes and no. Um, it, it, life was pretty dark. I, Looking back now that I have some clinical experience under my belt, I realize that uh, most of my life have experienced um Clinically, it's called dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder, which is uh, essentially it's like depression, but it's not major depression, meaning that it, it doesn't take you out, right? It doesn't knock you down and keep you down. It's kind of one of those things that you're just you're just kind of sad <laughs> all the time, but it's not bad enough that you, that you usually go and get diagnosed. Um, so looking back, that was definitely an experience that I've kind of felt my whole life since, I guess, my earliest memories, really. Um, yeah. And it, as far as being aware, yeah, I, I knew it was attracted to men, but like I said, I never would have mentioned it to anybody.
0: Um, it's funny, just as a side, I was trying to remember that term you just came up mm. with, d- dysthymia.
1: Dysthymia. Because
0: mm-hmm. um, I remember a, a diagnosis that you just described and I couldn't remember. And I Googled for about an hour the other day, I Googled not quite depression diagnosis and I uh, couldn't yes. ever find it. And here you just shared it with me. Um, that's really funny. Talk about, um, as you got your call to Wisconsin, um, was this a major concern? Were you thinking much about your sexual orientation as you took that call? Did you wonder if it would change you? Did you wonder if you'd be Mm effective? Did you wonder if God would support you? Um, just kind of take us back if you can, as you were taking that call and heading out on your mission, or was it just kind of so far away that it just wasn't part of what you were thinking about?
1: Well, let's see. I wasn't necessarily worried about liking men. I I guess because I (laughs) had become so skilled at pushing that down, um, and ignoring it, but I will say this, it, I used my mission. I became my whole life up until 2016 or even later than that, I I would be what I called hyper-religious, um. Which means I, I was trying to be exactly obedient, right? I would I was a very black and white type thinker. And um, it was like, either you're right or you're wrong, or I'm being perfectly obedient or I'm not. And then when you're not, because we're human, then you feel terrible about yourself and such. Um, but... You know, I forgot where I was going with that. Just, what was your question? I'm sorry, just Richard.
0: Kind of, you're doing a good job. I like you talking about hyper being hyper-religious. Just, you know, how much of this was part of your mindset as you left on mm, your mission, your sexual okay. orientation?
1: Yeah, I, it was on my mind for sure because I used, I was like, hey, God, I, I was in the bargaining stage, right? Um, as far as saying, Hey, if I go on a mission and I'm exactly obedient, will you please make me not like guys anymore? So I can marry a girl, like just make it happen, please. Right. So I was, I I was doing what now I've heard possibly even hundreds of other people's stories. I realized that's a very common theme to feel that if you're good enough, righteous enough, obedient enough, the Lord will change you. Like inherently something that's inbred within you. Right. So I was figuring, Hey, I'll go on a mission. This will be great because before my mission, I didn't have to worry about dating girls. I went on group dates, but I didn't have to worry about being exclusive, right? Because I was like, going on mission, I don't have to worry about girls. Um, So I went on my mission, which was an amazing experience for sure. Um, But I was like, hey, I'm going to be exactly obedient and I'll be straight when I come home. That was my plan.
0: I like, thanks for sharing that. Can you share a mission experience with us? Mm. Just... um, just any category of mission experience that comes to mind?
1: Well, I don't know. That's a broad question. Three things come to mind, but I'll, maybe I'll just share one. Um, well, two, actually. First, being on a mission was actually super helpful, being able to be with, with other males. And because I think before my mission, I felt very disconnected from other males, right? I, I can't quite say what it is, but I, I felt disconnected. Right. Even from like my brothers, and my dad, I just didn't feel connected. And I didn't feel like I could be close with them, intimate. And we're not talking sexually, right? But we're talking like intimate in an emotional way. I didn't feel like I could um, for whatever reason. But on my mission, I started to gain that brotherhood feel, I would say. And uh, that was super, super helpful. So, as far as like some people go on a mission and they're like super tempted as far as sexuality goes. But for me, that was not this, not the case at all. It was a very healing experience, being able to, to be with them. Um, looking back, I wish I had the knowledge that I I guess I would wish I was more kind and less, for lack of a better term, hyper-religious. Um, some people may hear that term and feel discomfort. Um, but for me, I don't I don't feel discomfort in it, in that um when I say hyper-religious, I'm referring to. I guess, loving or feeling the need to have things black and white to the, k- to the extent that you don't love people as much as you should. Um, so I think I was too much of that on my mission, striving to be ever so obedient to the point that I forgot the purpose of obedience.
0: Do you think if you were straight, you would have been as hyper-religious?
1: That's a great question. I can't honestly answer that. That's probably right? a good point. Yeah, I, I guess I couldn't in good conscience answer that. But I would imagine me theorizing, I would say probably not, because my hyper-religiosity came from a place of wanting the Lord to change me yeah. through my obedience. And yeah. so, yeah, I was hyper-obedient and hyper-religious in, with the desire to not be gay anymore.
0: I love that you had this good mission experience i I think you blessed a lot of people. I think you know that, but I've always had this impression that missionaries don't know how many people they blessed, and that's one of the great things that'll happen in the next life is you'll get that sort of you'll uh, i think we focus on numbers on our mission and I think a lot of the good missionaries do don't it doesn't ever show up in those key indicators if that's what they're called these days. <laughs> Um, Just the lives you changed and the people you helped. So thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you. Talk, just keep telling your story. What year did you come home? Because we're going to lead up to Mother's Day of 2016.
1: Let's see. I left in 2011, came home in 2013.
0: So talk about your home now from your mission. Your mission buddies are dating and starting to get married and the pressure's on. I don't don't know if you felt, if just talk to us. I got home
1: found a major that I felt very inspired to go into. And that was awesome. Um, I was actually going to teach seminary. That was my plan was to teach seminary. I'd taken the, the class. I was on the course to do that. Um, but then I w- I'm always a planner. And so I had a backup plan, <laughs> which was medicine, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, about two years into it, I had been dating, but not nearly as much. I, I kept justifying her. When I came back from a mission, I was like, oh, still like guys. Uh, I was like, Oh, well maybe if I just focus on school, then uh, I'll give it more time and it'll change. Right. I'll just give it more time. That was constantly in my brain. More and more time will fix it. Um, so, but more and more time went on. I, I dated, I dated quite a bit. You know, I had a girlfriend for six months. That was my longest girlfriend. And, um, and it was, it was good. I mean. I'm gay, but I, I also under, I see the beauty in women. Right. And I have a high respect for women for sure. So I, I would say I was emotionally attracted to women in some ways. Um, so that, that was good. That allowed me to date. Um, but eventually probably three years into my undergrad, I decided I was like, Oh, I can't teach seminary full time because you have to be married. Right. So then I, I shifted to the medical route. Um, and in 2016 happened. And yeah, do you want me to go into that or what would you
0: hold right there. I want to go back. You're doing a good job. Talk about did you ever try to kiss in a girl? And if oh, so, yes. how did that feel to you?
1: <laughs> oh man. Uh, so my roommates still love this. Um to this day my, my roommates and I are our best of friends, my older roommates I should say. And um the first time I kissed a girl, I was t- how old was I like twenty something, twenty-three or four it was this girl I'd been dating for six months, right? And I hadn't, I hadn't kissed her. So then I felt the pressure to kiss her. So I did, and it was—I was like, "Oh, that's nasty! Like it's wet and it's gross." And Jeremy, and who in the world would ever want to do that? So my roommates and I still laugh about that. I came home and I was like, "That was nasty. Who would ever do that?"
0: <laughs> I just love you being so honest, and it's taking the shame. And so, thanks for being so honest. Do you did that. Kiss. I don't want to drag. Get too much into that kiss and the clarification of that kiss. Did it? Did it? Was it pivotal in the sense you thought this isn't ever going to work with a woman, or was it just a kiss that didn't resonate with you?
1: Mm. Oh, it's hard for me to remember. I don't have the best memory. Um, I think it was a little bit of both. It was kind of terrifying to be like, "Oof, that didn't feel like." it should have um but then i justified it yet again saying oh it must be somebody else so then i of course i broke up with her with just like everybody else i had dated <laughs> up to that point um yeah so i kind of just said oh it must not be the right girl
0: talk about um when you came home you mentioned this i still like men mm-hmm. i still like guys i think is your vocabulary was that as soon as you got home and when you or after a while and maybe more importantly did that was that really crushing in the sense that this 2 years of work and what you're now terming as hyper being hyper religious didn't change you. Hmm.
1: Well, I I don't know if this will adequately answer your question, but I'll go ahead and say it. I think even though now I can talk about it relatively like uh, balanced in a balanced way, um for anybody who's listening who maybe has doesn't ha- really have that much close exposure to the LGBTQ community, I would just say um, before you judge and speak, recognize that people like myself and many others who had it way worse than I did um went through some of the most some of the worst experiences of our lives emotionally, and we were alone to do it um so yeah, when I got home terrified or i don't know hopeless is a good word um. Just for anybody who, who says, hey, you, you could change being gay. It's kind of a choice or, or it's just a phase, you know. We can talk about that later, the whole phase idea. But um, I would say before you speak, get to know the story of the person you're, you're giving advice to. And for myself, and I would say a large majority of other people, um, these are things that we grappled with for years. And these are things that we literally cried and pled with the Lord to change. And um, fasted and went to the temple, you know, work in the temple, just talk to bishops and and therapists and state presidents, and um, so before ever giving advice, I would say recognize that the person you're probably giving advice to has thought about this probably more than you have, and they have pled with the Lord in the most soul-racking ways that many of us um, have never experienced.
0: A great segment. That's just Adam speaking from the heart. Thank you. Talk about um, you know, this. I usually ask all my guests to talk about suicide mm-hmm. and how much suicide ideation or plans. Share with us, you know, kind of the darkest times for you and how suicidal you became.
1: 2016. Um yeah, sorry. In 2016 when I first came out, the reason I came out, I would say, was um not only the whole gay thing, but I, I was um taking the heaviest course load. Um as far as challenging material in, in school, I was in a challenging calling. Um and then on top of it all, like just the this um attraction to men that I'd stuffed and and dug a hole and buried it thousands of times was starting to bubble up. Um So, yeah, so that started to occur. And then um, that was the first year I had a panic attack. I was like, what is going on? It was the most embarrassing experience of my life, possibly. (laughs) I was in front of the whole chemistry faculty when it occurred. (laughs) I had no idea what was going on. Um, And and from there, I would say that's when I really started to get quite depressed. Um, And at times, uh, lots of suicidal ideation. Um, I was blessed with a couple. Friends that, uh, they went above and beyond in their efforts to, to help me and, and to love me and, and support me. Um, but that was a tough time for sure. Very, very tough.
0: Talk about what your friends did. Did they know you were gay or did they just know you were having a hard time and just tried to support you the best way they could?
1: I came out to them so they knew. Um, and yeah, so they had already known and, and the way that they helped, I think, two of my friends in particular, we, they were honestly just there to talk and listen. (laughs) And I feel like I must've, with some of them, I must've had the same conversation. Like, cause I, I was so committed to the gospel that I was like, I can't, I can't be gay, but this is where I feel like the Lord's pushing me. And I feel like my emotions are pushing me, but I do not want to go there. Um, And so I I was just kind of talking through all hundreds of scenarios, but many of them repeat scenarios over and over in my head because I needed somebody who I could bounce ideas off of. And so my my roommates, that is what they did for me. They did hundreds of hours of listening and talking through things with me.
0: How did you know they could handle this subject or that they wouldn't reject his roommates or get weirded out?
1: You know, I honestly can't say that I, I did know that they wouldn't. It was a leap of faith that I had to take.
0: It's kind of the only option. Advice for roommates. What did they do? You know, it sounds like they did a good job.
1: They did. I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, I wasn't perfect. They weren't perfect. Nobody ever is. But boy, did they, uh, they, they were just so willing to listen, I think is, is so helpful. Yeah. That's kind of the most important part.
0: That's great. What a- I think listening is a christ like attribute that can heal and give hope, just yeah talk about just getting out of this really dark place. It sounds like you had to come out to some people you came out to roommates talk about mother's day
1: so Mother's Day two thousand sixteen that was the first time um, i I came out to to my bishop now, I guess technically it wasn't I'd come out to a bishop who i i he had said some things in, in sacrament meeting. I don't remember what they were, but he, I think he'd be pretty vulnerable for a sacrament meeting. So I was like, I can trust him, right? And I couldn't hold it back anymore. So I went and told him. He got released two weeks later. A new bishop got put in. So then um, that new bishop uh, asked me to serve as his secretary. And so I got a few months of getting close to him. And then Mother's Day is when I came out to him. So that, that's kind of in my head how I mark it as my first coming out day. Cause, um, yeah, I I just remember I came out to him. I was driving home later that day to see my family and I was so exhausted. I was just like crying. And I was like, look, God, you have to tell I'm 30 years old and then, and then I can't do this anymore. Um, so that, it was just a a very tiring day. It's a good way of putting it, um. And from then on, I started telling my family members, my roommates, everybody from then on, just kind of one by one, started telling them.
0: How'd your family respond?
1: Good. I mean, everybody, I have a big family. I'm the youngest of eight kids. And um, so I have seven brothers and sisters and two parents and everybody responded differently. Uh, I w- I wouldn't mark any one of them as responding horribly <laughs> by any means. Every one of them was very, very loving. And, and some of I would say some of the most tender memories I have with them is for me coming out.
0: If a parent or a family member is listening and wants to create a tender me- memory for their own kid, if they come out, w- what advice would you give family or parents? Because you've got some really, I can tell you've had some meaningful experiences that are very positive with your family.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I would say, at least for me, the best way is is to. Well, you can't ever do it perfect, right? <laughs> I just want to dispel that misbelief that you can you can be a perfect family member um, to somebody who's within this community, or I would extend it to anybody who goes through a big trial in life. Right? You're always going to do something wrong, and that's just normal, and that's acceptable. Um, but what you can do now is to develop a a trait of humility and a trait of listening and not um, necessarily talking about what you don't agree with. Or you've said it on your podcast many times, uh, and so have some apostles, like nobody needs another lecture. We've all heard the lecture thousands of times. We've told ourselves lectures millions of times. So it, nobody needs another lecture. What they do need is you to put their, your arm around them and say, Hey, I love you. And how can I help?
0: Tell me about your experience. That's Great. Um, any suggestions for bishops? You've come out to a few bishops. Any suggestions for local leaders as someone's coming out to them? And mm. I don't know if you want to mention what that bishop did that got released to just sort of indicate to you he was safe. Because um, there's something happened in his talk that you go, ah, oh, he's safe for me.
1: Yeah. You know, so many years ago, I don't remember what he did, but I do remember who he was as a person. You know, and that's what's so important is that he was willing to be real.
0: So he he was vulnerable. He was
1: vulnerable in sacrament meeting.
0: And that just created a feeling you could be vulnerable with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other advice, any other things that come to your mind that bishops have done?
1: Well, I'll I'll preface it with this. I have had some amazing, um, I think the Lord's blessed me with all of my bishops that I've talked to and worked with have all been, some have been amazingly humil, like ha- have possessed a great amount of humility, have been very, very humble people, and that's what I needed because I don't respond well to um, <laughs> non-humble people. I guess you could say, uh, and so that's that's what I need. So I would say humility's number one. Um, be proactive if you can. Like I don't expect anybody to. Like you, I think you're incredible because you went out of your way not to just sit and, and exist. You went out of your way to learn about a community that you didn't have to. Like you were in no way, shape or form obligated to learn about the LGBTQ ally like, and become an ally to, to our community. But yet you did. And um, I would say to bishops and stake presidents, do that. Learn the language of emotions. Right. I love Brene Brown because she gave me words, her teachings gave me words to express what I was feeling. Um, and if bishops can learn to have, I guess, social um, social skills, not, not that they're awkward, but if they can learn how to be vulnerable, what is vulnerability, how to not impose shame, um, and how not to give answers all the time. Right? I know, sadly, I was told by one stake president when I was uh, really depressed and stuff, he just said, hey, you'll get over it if you just serve more. I was like, well, you know, I'm already putting in a good 15 hours a week in my calling. I go to the temple every week. I I read my scriptures. I pray. And and you're just telling me I'm not enough because I'm not serving enough. Um, So I I think those experiences are pretty hurtful, to be totally honest, for somebody to say, hey, you're you're just not trying hard enough. Just go do more and you'll get over it. Um, That's not helpful. Those types of things, not helpful, hurtful. Um, So I would say be humble, listen, and you don't have to solve everybody's problems. And don't feel like when they come in to tell you that you have to solve them. Like that's on them. Like we have to put responsibility on humans to take care of their own problems. But it is our responsibility to love them through that problem solving experience.
0: It's a good segment. Um, a year later on Mother's Day 2017, were you in a better spot emotionally? Did, was it a gradual thing to sort of get out of this real dark suicidal ideation? Mm-hmm. This is sort of you talking to other people that are right now where you were in 2016, mm-hmm. thinking about suicide a lot. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a plan or it's just imminent, but they're thinking about it a lot. Just talk a little bit about how that improved for you and as a way just to just give hope for others. Yeah, it definitely
1: did. Uh, thankfully, I think my, how bad it got was was circumstantial in many ways in that uh, I had lots of pressures. And, and as I began to tell more people, it was like an escape valve, like the pressure started to decrease gradually. And you're right, I think it, I was probably in a relatively depressed and suicidal state for Probably two years, two to three years, wow. um, and but it gradually got better. And that was the first time in my life I started going to therapists or or count. At that time, it was a counselor, and um, and that was super helpful. For so anybody who's in that state, I say go to therapy, go to counseling. I always grew up with the con- like preconceived notion that counseling and therapy was meant you're broken, and that they would. I don't know where I got this idea, but but counselors were not in line with the the gospel. I don't know how I got that idea, but I did, um, that they would lead you astray if you went. Um, And that's not the case at all. And so I would say go to therapy. (laughs) Uh, And if you don't fit well with your counselor after a few sessions, get a new one. It's in my field of medicine. I always tell people antidepressants, we have tons of antidepressant options, right? And so if a patient comes back to me after a month of being on it or even six weeks or two months and they say, hey, it's just not working for me, I say, let's change to a different one and see if that works. Same with counseling. If you don't, don't sit well with your counselor, then get a new one. Um, that's just kind of a little side tip, I would say.
0: When you say the pressure valves sort of release just talking to people, is that because the nature of the core issues change or is it just because talking to people just allowed you to deal? Better with the, the workload, you know, just all the things you had going on. You, it's a really intense time of life. So, did that just talking to people just sort of release these, you know, just make it easier to manage your current situation?
1: I would say when we attach words to shame, shame diminishes. And that's what the escape valve was for me.
0: Talk about why there's shame around sexual orientation. <laughs>
1: It's a great question. Um, that's like a history lesson really. Right. Um, some, I will say this is all my opinion, obviously, but some people say that the increasing number of those who fit within the LGBTQ um, community are increasing because the Society is influencing us to be gay or to be bisexual or or whatever um or transgender i don 't agree with that. I think we're creating a space where people who always have experienced it can feel safe to come out um, but again i 'm sorry, I lost track of what Sh- your question no, was i got you're answering it
0: you're answering it because you're talking about shame and how shame keeps people oh yes that's right and you're i think You're talking about just why more people are identifying as LGBTQ Mm -hmm. and talking about shame.
1: Yeah. So historically, I would say um, I grew up in Idaho and in Pocatello, Idaho, and I grew up in the church, a very, very strong um, LDS background. And well, to be quite frank, um, the church is imperfect and the humans within it are imperfect. Therefore, I don't expect perfect results. Um, and the church has not always been very kind to those who are gay or or whatever else that's different, right? Um, if you know history well, and I guess don't wear blinders, you recognize that some very hurtful policies and words have have taken place that are very hurtful. Right. And then growing up to just be told that, um, like in the community, I knew who was gay, right. I knew there was a florist down the street who was gay. Um, and that made him different. Right. And so as a kid, I knew that that wasn't a good thing. And then my family is very politically active. And so I, I remember when I was in, Ooh, it was even after my mission. I think we like went to the Capitol and to oppose gay marriage, they're proposing as a, as an amendment to the state constitution. This is before it was legal um, within the U S as a whole. Um, And so I, I just, I vividly remember um, things said and not necessarily the things that were said, but the way they were said, there was a lot of animosity towards gays or, or people who were different. Right. Um, And so some people may say, I don't hate, hate gay people. Like I haven't really said mean things about them. In all reality, most people have, to be totally honest. And, um, but for me, what stuck with me was the things that were said, but also the ways that they were said. Like kids are really good at picking up on um, anger, I would say, and hatred. Kids are really, at least I was as a kid, right? So when things were said um, as a kid with even a small degree of anger or hatred, you pick up on it and you learn... To, to adapt as a child, right? Humans are made to adapt. We're very uh, adaptable beings. And so as a kid, that's how I adapted. I learned, ooh, I need to be ashamed of, of this part of me. And um, it's not okay to be gay. In fact, you're probably going to hell if you do, if you are gay um, and you're a bad person. It's disgusting. Um, those kind of are some words that come to my mind.
0: Thanks for being so honest with that and the shame it creates and um, and just the length end of having less shame so more people are feel safe coming out. But talk about your decision to date men.
1: Uh, this took place actually in 2000. Well, it's been a year and a half to two years, I think. So I started PA school in 2018, summer of 2018. And then I would say it was fall, probably around... Fall season of 2018. Um, I just had another wave of just self doubt, and I could feel myself being moved towards that. Like, feeling like, oddly enough, some people say I'm crazy, but feeling like that's where the Lord wanted me to go was to date men. Um, but I was not having it, and I dug in my heels, and I was like, nope, no, it won't do that. Um, and so I started to get more depressed and more anxiety. Um, and I call it my PA school breakdown where I just, one day I was, I was doubting my capacities, really. Um, some things had happened with the teacher. And, um, and so I was like, wow, if I must not be smart enough. I must not be good enough. And so I wrote up an email to my program director. And I was like, hey, I, I don't think it's a service to, to my future patients. If I'm not smart enough to do this, I think I should just drop out now. So thankfully she was um great, great woman. Um she uh she came and got me. Um we had a conversation, she prayed with me. She's not LDS, but she was great. Um So thankfully I did not drop out. Cool. <laughs> and the funny thing as an aside, with mental illness, it's so funny because I had no reason to drop out, right? I had no bad grades. I didn't have anything to justify my thought process that I wasn't good enough or smart enough. That's that's just what shame is, right? It's it's the feeling that I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, and it and it, and it knows no boundaries. Um, so it was it had intercepted my. Personal life, my spiritual life, my academic life, um, and it was really taking hold again, and so she'd walked me out of the counseling center. I met Cameron for the first day then, and uh, he and I worked together for probably a good year um, on and off and uh, and he was the one who actually helped me come to terms with dating men. oddly enough. <laughs>
0: How long in that process did you come out to him as gay because first day first day why
1: mm. I feel like um, I think because so much of my shame revolves around being gay. And so I feel like if I need help and I'm going to him for help, he needs to know the whole me.
0: Cool you did that. Really cool you did that. Do you remember how Cameron responded? He cried. It was great. He cried. What kind of emotion was behind his tears? What did it mean to you when he cried? Compassion. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Uh,
1: The day I went to... I went to see him. I was a mess, I feel like, because I was, you know, I was ready to to drop out of PA school, which is something I'd worked for for years, you know. Um, and so I wasn't holding back. I was, I was a mess. And so I was just telling him. I think uh, usually I, I don't fully express my emotions, I would say. Yeah. Um, but he got the the whole unfiltered emotions of my day. Uh, he, he. I guess he got the full me kind of in cool. a whirlwind. Um, Cause normally like you don't go up to somebody and you're like, Hey, I'm gay. And in here, let me tell you about all the shame I have. Um, uh, I, I think so. What made him cry was honestly probably just kind of, uh, I give him a, a I, I don't want to I- idolize myself at all. Um, but I think I allowed him to kind of see some of the pain I had felt. I opened that door fully for him to see. And thankfully he was in a place where he could be comfortable with that. And not all people are. I recognize that some people um, haven't done the personal work to get to the point where they can be comfortable sitting in those emotions with somebody else. But thankfully um, he was.
0: That's cool. Um, That's really cool. Carmen, if you're listening, that's really cool. And I love your recognition of he needed to do the work in his own personal life to be able to sit with you. I think what you're saying is he needed to be um, emotionally strong enough and willing to sort of go where people needed to go so he could fully be there for you and be present in the situation and, and be open to hearing the totality of your situation and somehow communicating that to you that he's safe to do that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's a skill set, right? Like, um, I often tell people who are, we study, say you're an accountant, you, you go to school and you spend hours and hours learning about finances and other things. But how often do we take the time to study ourselves? To me, that's what psychology is. That's what therapy is, is it's taking time to actually learn about the inner world that exists between your own two ears. And too often we, we don't take time. We study the outside world, but we don't study what's within.
0: It's cool. And Cameron, as I tried to mention earlier, is a clinical psychologist. Um, Talk about when I was sort of new to this space, a therapist introduced a term, an LDS therapist, and I have th- self-determined that, yeah, they want everybody, because they're LDS, <laughs> mm-hmm. they want everybody to stay in the church. They would invite everybody as a therapist, you kind of have this responsibility to help people find their best path. So it's a little different responsibility, perhaps, than a parent or a, a local leader. Um, but, but you still maybe have some personal feelings about you would like people to stay within the teachings of the church. But a therapist taught me this principle of self-determination that it's okay for me to let people self-determine their best path even if it's not personally what I would choose or what I would invite generally. Did you does that resonate with what you and the work you and Cameron did? Absolutely.
1: Yep. that's actually where I got to the point of feeling comfortable dating men because like I mentioned earlier I'd felt like I was being guided to it but I was like not going that that I was not allowing that at all. Um, but he was the f- he I would say was the first person to fully and completely say, "Hey, what do you want to do?" Um, and I said, "Well, if I date men, I'm going to hell for sure." And uh, and he said, "Are you really?" Like he challenged the beliefs I'd always held. And him doing that, um, and then he said, "Do you want to date men? Do you not want to date men? You tell me, and we're going that direction. You decide, kind of that self determination, right?" And the simple act of him. First asking myself to challenge the beliefs that I assumed to be doctrine, but now I've learned, hey, maybe it's not doctrinal that I'm for sure going to hell if I date men. Um, Him giving me the space to question um, and then say, hey, I'm going to support you no matter what, allowed me to finally embrace that and move forward with faith and hope.
0: And I like that. It's a complicated space, listeners, this sort of intersection, and I just, I'm, I'm comfortable with that discussion. I love the way he just let you, he asked you questions that allowed you to ask further questions of your own journey and get better per, per, personal revelation for your own path. I don't, it doesn't sound like he was prescriptive, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not prescriptive, so I don't have these uniform, like everybody that's LGBTQ needs to leave the church to be happy. Um, where everybody, you know, these, some of these binary things. I love what you know. Just, I think my role as a parent, or as, if I were a therapist, would be asked questions that allow people to get better personal revelation, um, and turn to heavenly parents and the scriptures and just good sources. But I'd probably invite you to trust the personal revelation. It's such a core part of our doctrine about the plan of salvation is mortal as agency. Yeah. Talk about dating men. How did that feel compared to dating women? Oh, so much better. Uh, <laughs> Why?
1: Uh, it just felt natural and normal for me. I, scary, for sure. It was scary because um, you're always like, "Oh, is somebody going to see me? Is like, are they going to judge me? All that." But um, yeah, it was it was great. I mean, well, there were some bad experiences, but who cares about those, right? We're going to focus on the good. So um, there was but I've met some really awesome people for sure. And I've learned a lot about myself, a whole lot.
0: And what's your, if you, if I'm, what's your hope going forward? I think I've mentioned the beginning of the podcast, you'd love to marry a man. Share with our listeners your hope. Well,
1: with the caveat that things change, right? So every like opinions change and and hopes change for sure. But as of right now, I, um, I plan on and hope to someday marry a man. And and I would love to stay in the church, to be totally honest, um, because I feel like there's so much goodness that it resides within it. Um, and yeah, so I'd love to be married to a man and stay in the church um, and raise, and I want kids for sure. And I would love to raise my kids within the gospel. Um, whilst I think doing my best to remove some of the Cultural things that I do not agree with such as <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question there there are a few things um I would say the culture of judgmentality, yeah, we're pretty judgy to be totally honest. I know I was like i'm completely I was more judgy than the average Joe in the church before, we're, we're pretty judgmental and pretty condemning at times. And I don't think we give each other enough space. Um, I mentioned before the podcast started that um, my faith now is actually more resilient than it ever has been. And I should probably define resilience. I haven't looked it up in the dictionary, but kind of how I think about it is um, it bounces back more easily, right? So now something before I kind of did my own internal work, something maybe historical that somebody brought up would have like really kind of like... It made me uncomfortable if somebody had brought up some uncomfortable part of our history within the church. It would have been made me really, really uncomfortable and maybe even ha- like made me doubt my faith. Um, but after years of work, now people can bring up things and I really don't feel uncomfortable anymore because I've worked through some things that I realized, hey, you know what? The prophets are very imperfect men and they make mistakes. And sometimes, in my opinion, this is my opinion, some pretty big mistakes that affect thousands of lives um, for the bad. But I still believe them to be prophets of God. And I still believe that they, they are um, pushing us in the right direction. And, um, and the Lord is really good about correcting errors, even big, big errors. Um, so that's kind of how I come to terms with it. And that's, that's what I would like to teach my children is give others the space to, to receive personal revelation. My personal revelation now is different than my revelation years ago um, because I, I just, I give myself the space.
0: Would you invite people that aren't members of our church to consider it as their path? For sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like offers so many blessings.
0: Absolutely. I love your testimony. It's a great testimony to me. Listeners, I just, I mean, for Adam to share that kind of a vulnerable testimony and say that I, you know, I just recognize, you know, this is how I feel. I hope we would never create a feeling that that's not a good enough testimony. And we would actually extend more empathy for you for willing to have that kind of testimony, knowing all the complexities But being able to see the beauty of our restored doctrine and God working through his prophets that I believe hold priesthood and priesthood keys and create space for you and other members that feel like you. Um, I feel so strongly about that, listeners, that one heart and one mind doesn't mean we all have this uniform feelings about everything, but we all have a desire to come unto Christ and bring others with us. And to me, that's creating Zion. And creating space for people in different political parties, people have different feelings about different issues, but we're unified in bringing us all to Christ. and And that doesn't mean we're all feel the same about every issue. Um, some may feel we have a racist history in our past, and some may not. And I would hope that both views, no one feels judged, and they feel equal. They don't feel like less of a Latter Day Saint for holding either of those views or some Latter-day Saints that think our prophets have never made a mistake and everything's just been exactly the way Heavenly Father wanted it, and other faithful Latter-day Saints that think there's been error that's come into the restored church at times. So, And the work it does, if you believe that there's error to continue to believe and develop the nuance to, to, to have what I call some dominoes that have fallen and some that haven't. So that's a great testament. I, I too invite investigators into the church. I'm emailing right now with several LGBTQ non-members that are wondering if, if this is the path for them to join the church because of these beautiful restored doctrines. Talk about without changing doctrine, what can we, if you marry a man, and let's just say our doctrine never changes and you're never fully able to participate in church, um, but you'll, what can we do Without changing doctrine, just to help you and your husband feel like a sense of belonging and no shame in your needed. It's a great
1: question. Um, I I feel so incapable in answering so many of these questions. Um,
0: You're doing a good job, Adam. No,
1: thank you. You're very kind. (laughs) Um, well, for one, I would say let's work on extending more grace and speaking more kindly of one another not even i'm not even referring to those who are with who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or whatever you know um let's just learn to be more kind and i know i myself I, i'm i need to work on this i need to work on humility um but that's for starters let's set a a, a kind hearted attitude towards all people um including you know with such a divisive political world currently. <laughs> when you think it can't get worse, it does. Uh, it's pretty incredible. I would say um, let's learn the, To let's let us learn to discuss kindly and professionally the differences that we have, but let us not dwell on them constantly. I would hope that we could. You don't have to agree on everything. You can agree to disagree and move on and and have some other more beneficial conversations. Um, So those, I would say personally, it's like learn to to become more personable, right? Like that's one way that we can become more accepting and kind to the LGBTQ community is is learn that. Also is maybe um, to rethink our assumptions of everybody, right? I I get asked um, sometimes like, hey, when are you going to get married? Um, are you dating any girls? It's like, well, actually, I'm not currently. <laughs> uh, so maybe I don't. Want, sometimes I'm like, why don't we just not worry about other people's love lives, and why don't we talk to them about their life? Like, what is going on in your life? So maybe don't don't give into the, such the the cultural things like pressure for marriage. Like, you got to get married. Trust me, I have a lot of single guy friends. Everybody wants to get married. They don't need extra pressure um so maybe feeling out what are the things when i talk with somebody ask myself am i adding pressure to them in the way that i speak to them and the questions that i ask am i adding unneeded pressure and am i doing it in an attitude of condemning or um i don't know self righteousness um so those are a couple things and then also if i were to get married i hope honestly that i'd be welcome in a ward and i would love to like hold a calling and that would be superb um, so there are simple things like that. Some people may say, what? You're gay and you're married. You cannot hold a calling. But if I would say, well, you don't even have to be a member to hold some callings. So why can't I?
0: Good point. I I love your answer there. And I I just think everybody should feel welcome in the congregation. Yeah. And um, there's straight people that have... I don't want to compare straight people in sin with same-sex marriage because I just I mean, I don't want to rank sin, but except the general principle, um, we all need we all need to come into Christ and we all need spiritual rejuvenation. And I think we all Christ would want everybody to feel welcome in our congregation so they can better connect with our heavenly parents and the beautiful benefits of the atonement and we continue to receive personal revelation in our lives. So I think it's our responsibility to make sure everybody's welcome. Mm-hmm. And if there's a same sex couple that comes into our ward and they're sitting next to each other, I think we just, you know, can mature enough to just not just recognize that's part of the human family and we should be kind and not try to protect our children in a way, we- in a way and point that out as I just, Think we can have a fact-based discussion with our kids about homosexuality and same-sex couples without demonizing them, without pointing to them and saying this is what's wrong with the world, and just not judge and just love and leave any judgment to Heavenly Father that ultimately knows the, you know, just everybody's personal journey.
1: Yeah. Um, do you mind if I go for it? I have a little simple aside. Um, some people are naturally blessed with the ability to love, right? I like I mentioned earlier, you, you stand out to me, I don't know your life story, so I can't make that assumption, but I guess I am We're at this moment making that assumption that some people have the gift of humility and kindness. Um, and others, I would say, if I see things through the lens of shame now. Um, cause I've started to realize how much it affects their lives. And as I see people who, who maybe aren't the most effective at being persuasive about their ideas, or they're not very good at showing love to others, um, I view that as, wow, that person has a lot of shame that they haven't worked through. So if you're one of the blessed who, who naturally has a caring and kindness to you, that's Awesome. Um, if you're not one of those people, I would encourage you simply to do the internal work, and often that does require therapy. Um, Brene Brown, like I mentioned, is a great resource. Uh, I I just don't under I don't foresee the church or the world improving very very quickly until people are humble enough to do the internal work, um, because I know when I was filled with shame, I was quick to to argue. I was quick to condemn. I was quick to judge. And now that I, I'm not possessed of that nearly as much, it's a, a battle currently, but, um, I'm much more capable of objectively viewing the world in a non object in a non, uh, demeaning and non-judgmental way, I would say. Um, and part of that's learning boundaries too, right? Like, like you said, you can have that conversation with with your kids. Um, you don't have to feel the need. You need to have boundaries and say, "I don't. I can't fix this person, and I shouldn't need to feel the need to fix this person either." Like, I'm my job is to love them. So, uh, and, and for parents who who don't know properly how how much engulfed they are in shame and they don't know how to properly set boundaries, I think conversations with their kids. Is really hard, so they avoid them and instead they condemn as like a as a a shortcut to getting quick answers to their kids.
0: Do you pray to find a husband? For sure, I do. Why?
1: Well, to be totally honest, the idea came from you on your one of your podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) I heard you ask somebody that, and I was like, you know, that's a brilliant idea. And I have been doing it. I can say it it brings a lot of peace to me.
0: It's a complicated space, listeners. I but I think if 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 I'm a father, I just, the only way I can look at this lens of a parent and I'm in a parent group with LGBTQ kids and some of them recognize the reality of their situation that their gay kid is going to marry, have a same sex partner and they go to the temple and they just pray that their kid will find the right partner for them. And they invite their kid to do the same. And I, and if I were a parent, I would want my kid to find the very best partner they could. I would just recognize that that's, there, there's a lot of fear of a parent when their kid starts same-sex dating. Um, it's, there's probably less of a roadmap. There's probably more bumps in the road. There's probably potentially people to take advantage of and you're vulnerable, extra vulnerable as you're first dating. I sense you've been pretty mature about that, but I just think you've got to take God with you on your journey. And you've got to involve God in every decision that you feel you're, every road you're going to go down, take God with you on that road and and ask for his help on that road. I would do that as a parent on any road my kid walked. And so I think our Heavenly Parents would do the same for us. And so I'm glad you are. Um, And I think he'll help you. Um, talk about the blessings of being gay.
1: Oh, um. Kind of bullet point list, honestly, it would be I've I've learned to be more tolerant. I've learned how to, uh, because I was gay and I went to therapy and I, I kind of had to face those issues. I've learned the skill set of how to sit with somebody in their pain and not feel the need to correct them or to take their problems upon me. But it's an interesting dichotomy. It's like, I'm not taking their problems on me, but I am bearing the weight with them. I, I don't, know any better way to say it, I guess
0: it's a great it's a dichotomy
1: it. for sure um, so I would say those those things are huge for me I've learned to love a lot more learned to to not judge um, and I've learned some pretty important what i 'll call emotional skills
0: do you think how do you think God feels about you and being gay um
1: I guess he feels the way he's always felt. <laughs> How's that? Uh, for the longest time I thought I was such a mistake. But oh, I guess it waxes and wanes. But I, I know ultimately at the core what I can say is that God is love and God is good.
0: Love that answer. Yeah, I think God loves all of you, Adam. Yeah. Um And I think, you know, that's sometimes a great way to decrease internalized homophobia listeners is to ask God how he feels about you and that part of you that you, that I think society has told you to have shame around. But I'm not sure God feels that same way um, about that part of you. So I encourage you to continue to get personal revelation listeners if that's the road you're walking. Talk about eye color. Oh, Give us color. an example of <laughs> okay.
1: eye color. So I was actually on a date a few days ago and um, the guy, he, he, uh, sorry, he um, gave the analogy of eye color. You may have, have you heard this analogy, Richard? Tell me it. Okay. Um, it's this, He was trying to put into maybe a more understandable terms, the experience that many gay people experience or bisexual or or all sorts of people, I would actually say. Um, so for sake of this example, let's say that everybody on the earth um, or the majority of people, aka straight people, um, have blue eyes. And that's growing up, that's what you're told you're supposed to have is blue eyes. And if you don't have blue eyes, you're not going to heaven and you're not, you can't be together with your family forever. Um, so then you grow up and you realize, I have green eyes, so you need to hide it. Right. So you get blue contacts, you put them in. Only problem is the blue contacts burn like constantly. Um, And so you go throughout your day, everybody thinks you have blue eyes like they do, but you know secretly you actually have green eyes. And you know it's really painful every day to put those contacts on, but you have to do it because you're sure, like you are sure that everybody's going to hate you if they find out you have green eyes. And like I said, that means you're not going to heaven. And you can't be with your family together and you, and you can't do things that people with blue eyes have do. Um, and some may say, well, like some, some people have said like maybe being gay is a phase and and we can change you. Right. I would say um trying to make me not gay is like you trying to change your hair, hair color. Uh, we can, you can, we can talk about science if you want. Um, but personally, I really don't care. Uh, I do, I've do. i studied some of it for sure, but um, I'm very much in the belief that uh, this is the way that I was created and I am. So, aka, I have green eyes. Not really, right? But for sake of this example. So let's say then you, every night you take out those burning contacts that you put in every day in order to hide who you are and to fit in. Um, and then you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I have green eyes. What is wrong with me? like something is extremely wrong and, and you hate yourself because you have green eyes and you don't have the blue eyes that you've been taught your whole life. You should have, and, and you're sick and disgusting if you don't have blue eyes, but you can't change them.
0: So there's the example for you. It's a great example. Talk about some common misbeliefs about LGBTQ people. Oh, let's see.
1: I made a little list earlier. Good. Um, Oh, let's talk about it's a choice and, and it's the popular thing to do. Um, hmm. <laughs> especially for somebody who grew up LDS, um, I would pose the question, why would anybody choose this? If it's a choice, why would anybody choose? Um, I'll be bold and I'll say the much harder path, the much more difficult path. I'm not at all taking away from the, the struggles that other people experience because they have struggles I cannot imagine. Um, other people that I've known, but um, logically, it makes no sense that somebody would choose this path. Um, and it has—I've I've had some people recently who say, you know, like like the media is trying to make people transgender and things like that. And I guess ultimately, you know, maybe there's a couple people throughout the world or a few that in certain areas who feel it's the popular thing to do. But in this region, and, and I will say, given the history of, of the shame and the persecution that gay and lesbian transgender people have experienced throughout the world history, I don't see why anybody would willingly choose that and say, hey, that's what I want. Um, I don't give into that narrative because people say it, but I think that's an out for a simple answer.
0: I like that, and that's a big focus of the book. Listeners, is those of you that have read the book, is just dispelling myths that add to people's burdens. I think it. I think these myths that Adam share, sort of. I go back to the parable of the good Samaritan. If we can see that wounded person on the side of the road and conclude that they brought that on themselves, um, then our responsibility to them somehow sometimes decreases but if we recognize that you know a trans person actually feels gender dysphoria the, and that is a pain they feel and so they want to transition to deal with that pain or they've are gay they felt gay they would love not to be gay then the, the responsibility shifts to us to lift burdens because we recognize that they didn't put themselves on that they didn't do anything to cause themselves to be on the side of the road um that's just you know that's just the reality of their life. And we have a responsibility to bear and mourn and comfort. So I, I like those. More that you want to share? Um,
1: yeah, just a couple quick ones. I have touched on them briefly before, but the idea that praying more, going to the temple more, fasting more, going on a mission, dating more, all the, uh, shall we say, primary answers are going to fix you is a farce. Yeah. Um it's I used to think that. Uh trust me, I think if it was going to work, it probably would have after two and a half decades. Um and the other idea is is just simply the foundational thought that it's something that needs to be fixed. That perpetuates shame so much. Meaning you are wrong in the way that you're created because it needs fixing. You don't bring you don't fix something if it's not broken, right? And so for the idea that we need to fix you is saying it's under the preconceived assumption that you are broken because you are gay or lesbian or whatever. Um, so, So, so think through that, like that is a huge shift for somebody in particular, like somebody who I would say grew up in this culture, this area, this region, that is a gigantic shift to accept the idea that somebody being gay is actually not wrong and that's nothing's wrong with them or broken about them they don't need fixing. And in fact, they have something to bring. Just like my straight brothers and sisters and friends and buddies have, like they have gifts. I have gifts. Um, and it's not just because I'm gay. It's my experiences have shaped my gifts.
0: I love that. And it took me a while to get to that point, but, I've, but I had to meet with LGBT people to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a great, I just agree with you. And I just I don't think Heavenly Parents look at any, LGBTQ person and say, "Oh no, something went wrong." Um, how do you feel about the resurrection and fixing this? Because oh, no my idea. LGBTQ friends <laughs> have a range of opinions, do, feelings yeah. about this, and I've honored just a range of different feelings about this.
1: That's such a great question. I have listened to your podcast, and I, I think I've listened to quite that range, also. Um, and I cannot, I cannot say. It's okay.
0: Yep. Um. Adam knows this, but I, one of the things I've certainly picked up is not pointing to the resurrection as, as the ticket to become straight if you're LGBTQ, because that could lead someone to say, that's my final lace in the whole, mm. hole. I will choose suicide because I've tried everything else to mm-hmm. become straight, that big list you went through. Yeah. And you get to the end of that road and you get into this place that, okay. This is this is how I finally solved this problem.
1: Yeah, and I think some people maybe that idea is helpful. Um, you know, honestly, ooh, maybe it was a little bit for me, but I also think it's kind of shameful, in a way, to instead of focusing on "Hey, you'll be fixed" or "You'll you'll be better." The trial at least will be gone when you're dead. <laughs> uh, why don't we make do and make happy with what we have now instead of focusing on the future so much? Like, why don't we just learn the skill set to be happy now? Why do we have the constant need to look to the future for happiness?
0: And I, I look at our doctrine, Adam. You know, I think we're sent here to be happy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want my kids to be happy now. I want my unmarried kids to be happy now, not later when they're married. I want them to be happy now before their degrees. I want them to be happy now before they're financially stable. Yeah, they're working towards all those things, but I I think we're you know, you know we're supposed to find joy. It's COVID right now. It's a difficult time to find joy, but I I I and I certainly don't like anymore. And I used to do this where I just point to the next life for all my LGBTQ friends and say, "My life's fine. I've got a wife and six kids. I'm going home to everything that you know I've ever dreamed of is within my control to have." But okay sorry, that's not available for you, but it will be in the next life. Mm -hmm. So I'll sleep better tonight saying that. (laughs) And I recognize I have to sit with you in the pain of how complex your situation is. And that, you know, I mean, I have a bunch of, you know, gay friends that message me. and, And if you're listening, please continue to message me. But I just recognize they have no one else to message. They have a positive experience. They're alone. They're celibate. They're in the church. They're doing trainings. They're sharing, but I recognize I'm getting these messages because they don't have a, a life partner to share positive, wonderful experiences with, and I'm just somebody as a friend in their life. And I'm honored to get those messages, but I recognize what's really going on here is is to fully participate in the church. They've sacrificed um, the opportunity to have a companion to share their life with. Mm-hmm. And they felt pretty comfortable. That's their path, and I sur- and we both support them. Or neither of us are trying to take one story and make it another person's story. But I, I just, you know, then your heart, you just develop better empathy and better yeah. understanding.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh,
0: any other thoughts? You've done a great job, Adam. Any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Hmm. Let's see. Oh, I have so many quotes and such. <laughs> um,
1: You know, there's, we could talk for hours, I'm sure. Um, but ultimately, I guess my, my ultimate take-home points for, for people listening, um, would be a few things. Um, but ultimately it comes down to personal responsibility for self-growth. Um, When life gets, when we're younger, there's a lot of change that takes place in the younger years of our lives. So we're forced to change and to adapt. When you get older and you have a kids and a family, or, or even if you're single, but you have a career and a home or whatever, uh, when life kind of settles in, there's some truth to the statement that we, we get settled in our ways, right? We become stubborn. Um, but that's your, your and my own personal responsibility to grow and to change. So for those listening, cause I know I'll, I plan on sharing this with my family and my, and my friends and, and such, um, know that I'm right there with you and I need to change and I need to grow. But, um, if you truly hope to accomplish the most that you can in this life, which I believe each one, I believe in the goodness of humans that we are meant and we want to do the best that we can. Um, sadly, some are in some very difficult situations, though from an outsider it might look like they're not trying their best or they're, they don't really want to do much with their lives. Um, but if we are truly to accomplish what, what we are capable of and that will bring the greatest amount of joy and happiness, we have to do things that are hard. And that includes, in my eyes, I honestly think everybody should go to therapy. I'm such a believer in therapy um, because you are taking the time to explore what's going on in your own brain, right um so as far as takeaway, I say, go to therapy, even if you feel great, go to therapy. I love that find a therapist but I, i've um in relation to race, so this is an aside of sorts that is is apl- applicable, I guess. Um, I've I've realized in myself and in others that that which does not affect us very much, we are quick to set aside. And um, so this year, with with race being such an issue, I've um, it's been good for me because it's corrected some of my false beliefs that racism is dead and and um, and such, and that I don't actually have privileges um, inherently born to me based upon my color of my skin and, and my gender and such. Now, there's a good way and a bad way to present that idea. The way I was introduced to, to my privileges as a white male was not a good way. It was in a very intimate, uh angry way, which was not helpful, but, but nonetheless got the point across, I guess. <laughs> uh, and so I would just say, When it comes to race, politics, LGBTQ, when it comes to sin, when it comes to imperfections of others, um, be humble and strive to learn about others because that which does not affect us intimately and closely, we are quick to dismiss. And so um, I hope and I invite all listeners to listen to this podcast. To do research, to I know, me, I've started to ask my friends who are of, of different ethnicities, how has it affected you? Like, how has your life been different than mine? That's not at all to say I'm a bad person or to say society is a bad place to live. Like, just because we're taking responsibility does not mean that we're bad inherently, right? Um, and that's a, a side thing I would say also that we can do as a church to do better is to, to learn how to take responsibility instead of shifting the responsibility to the unknown meaning we just don't have the answers because some things in the gospel don't have answers now, but they will in the next life. Um, that's okay. Sometimes I'm not okay with it when it's used to shift responsibility because in it's my a life,
0: great concept. yeah,
1: I'm, I just, I, as I've learned skills of emotional intelligence and, and psychological growth and mental health, I've realized that um, responsibility me taking responsibility for what's mine and you taking responsibility for what's yours is absolutely essential. And I'm sorry to say that I have not always done that. And um, we as a church have not always done that. And we as human beings don't do that perfectly, Uh, but I I hope we will. So maybe in closing, I've been reading this great book. It's called, it's timeless. I'm sure you've heard of it. How to win friends and influence people. I wanted to read it for years, but I haven't until <laughs> now. It's a great book. <laughs> it really is. Um, the author is Dale Carnegie. So it was written, I learned, oof, I think the nineteen is it twenties or 40s maybe?
0: I think you're right.
1: It's old. Um, he did, the author did a 10-year research into Abraham Lincoln, and he started his life a lot. And he breaks down, why was Abraham Lincoln such an amazing leader and... uh and led this country through possibly one of the hardest times that we've ever experienced. Um, And and some, I guess, it's just a thought, but Abraham Lincoln, as most people will know, that he was the president during the Civil War, right? And I know there's been talks and people are like, maybe there's a Civil War coming. I have no idea. Certainly hope not, obviously, right? But uh, if he was the man to lead us through that time period, I can think of no better man to study than him at this time of high political turmoil within our our own families and within the world. So um, Abraham Lincoln, well, I'll just go ahead and read a passage from the book. The author says when Miss Lincoln and others spoke harshly of the Southern people, Lincoln replied, quote, don't criticize them. They're just what we would be under similar circumstances. So that takes a lot of humility. When, when we're, um, Quick to judge, or I, I should say, when we feel a comment that's very uh, matter of fact coming out of our, our mouth, or when, when it's trying to work its way out of our brain into our mouth, I would say, ask yourself, where's the person I'm talking to coming from? And the people I'm criticizing, would I be doing the same thing if I was in their shoes? So that was quite a bit of last comments, but, but that's what I would say. Those are my final take-homes, like let's do the work, even though we're not being forced to via life circumstances, to, to be humble and to learn about others. And like I said, that which is distant and does not affect us, we are quick to dismiss. So let us bring those who it is affecting into our circle of friends so that it does affect our individual lives.
0: It's been a great podcast, Adam. Thank you for sharing so much your story it's so helpful for all of us Um, if your parents are listening mama and papa baker what a great son you have here Um, this well-rounded deeply spiritual deeply thoughtful focused on this new job in the fruitland vale ontario area Um, what a just congratulations for what you've done with all your kids but for um, Adam doesn't want to hear me publicly thank him, but you've just done a great job and you have a great son. And he's just got a great life of ahead of him, grounded in a belief in Heavenly Father, the Atonement, and great skills to just um bless and help other people. Um, so thank you for the great parents you are and the great son you have. That book you um Add to Win Friends and Influence People was um the Number one book outside the scriptures, our mission president had us read Mm. Ellis Ivory in England in 1979. I didn't ever like the title too much because it sounded manipulative, but I love the principles in the book and it's been fundamental to me to give me skills to listen. It's It's a book about human relations and it was so important for me. It really hardwired me. Um, in so many ways, that who I am, that book, and I've forgotten that. Um, so, thank you for reminding me about this, this dystemia. I think I'm not even pronouncing it right. And that book, that's so part of I, I'm I'm hardwired. A lot of the things that you may be kind to me about come because of the principles of that book and, and my mission present teaching us um, fundamental interpersonal skills that came to that book, like smile, get to know someone's name. Just basic human things. So with that, this is Richard Osler and Adam Baker signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.